So the Buches are getting guys on base. Now they got to get him in. And it looks like Chapman is going to do just that. A two-run blast to left to tie it up. Same pitch, same spot, very different result, Tappy. Hey, what's going on? It's At The Letters, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer artist in Swelling, by Nicholson Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And today is Wednesday, June the 15th. Ben, let's go back a month, because a month is a nice time frame to look at things in. Since May 14th, a month ago, the Blue Jays have won 19 of 28. So that's a 679 winning percentage. That is a 110 win pace. Playing really good baseball over the last month. And in that span, the Blue Jays have lost two and a half games on the New York Yankees. Because they have gone 21 of 29. A 724 winning percentage. A 117 win pace. The Blue Jays are playing as well as they have all season, as well as we've seen them play since, I guess, the end of last season when they went on that crazy run, and they are losing ground in the standings. Yeah, and with no end in sight, like every night I'm checking the standings and just seeing you know how the Yankees are doing, and it seems like the Yankees win every night. I know it's not actually true, but it feels like the Yankees win every night, and the Jays are playing great, like you said. I mean, you look at the whole season, they're on a 95 or 96 win pace, they're doing a lot of things right. They're in a really good spot bringing up Gabriel Moreno. I mean, to have him producing the way he is, flashing those tools uh, in his first few games in the majors, they're, they're looking great. But the kind of reality ahead of them is just that the Yankees are, are doing that much better. So, you know, Judge having an MVP year, it's I understand like they're going to have stretches where they go three and seven. Of course, they're not going to win 117 games, but you know, they might win 107 and I don't think the Toronto Blue Jays will. So it's uh, it's quite a team to have ahead of you in the standings. No, I'm doing the same thing. Right. So I uh, over the weekend, I'm doing Blue Jays Central in the studio with with Jamie. And I'm like, we've got the big board with all the games on there. And every time I look up, it's like and the Yankees are playing the Cubs at the time. And it was like Yankees out to a three nothing lead. And I go do some work. I look back. Yankees up seven one. Go do some work. Look back. 15 one <laughs> 17 runs <laughs> it's just crazy carpenter deep again and then i'm watching last night because like garrett cole's on the hill and like Garrett cole's a really interesting pitcher to watch and it's two nothing like they are winning via blowout and then they are winning squeakers over a really good club in the tampa bay rays who by the way is still a problem in this division like still 35 and 26 still really good and the Yankees winning squeakers over them in which like really not a good night offensively from the New York Yankees, like one for 11th runners in scoring position left eight on base. They had five hits all night, four of them singles, but a couple of those singles were sequenced around errors in the fourth inning and you score your two runs and then you just go, you know, Cole to King to Holmes and that's all she wrote. So Listening to what you had just said about, you know, the pace the Yankees are on and like where they would even end up, even if they just played a bit over 500 the rest of the season. Are we about to call this division on June 15th? Like, is it realistic to sit here and say, like, pretty likely scenario that the Yankees are your American League East champions as we sit here, like, well before the All Star break? 
Yeah, likely scenario, yes. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they're they're looking great. Now, call the division, no chance. No chance. I mean, this is it's June 15th. They got so much time. Things can go in a lot of different directions from here. I think this this weekend, I mean, the Yankees come to Toronto this weekend for a few games. It's going to be a lot of fun for the Jays. These chances, if you want to catch the Yankees, these are probably your your important chances to take advantage of that. They really are. Say the Yankees sweep the Blue Jays this weekend. Would you call the division that? No, not yet. Because um, <laughs> even then, it would be June twentieth, right? Yeah. I mean, it's you know, as we record this right now, how many the Jays have? What a hundred games left? I think it's one hundred thirty-six um, and twenty-five. Is, so that would be so they've played sixty-one. Yeah, yeah. So they have a hundred and one games left. As people are listening to this, the Jays have a hundred games left. I mean, there's so much baseball. Sometimes Do we have like, to work all those. <laughs> well, oh my yeah. god. I, I mean, yeah, that's oh, a topic for that's another day. Three but, digits. 80 would sound daunting you just said 101 no i know and it feels like i mean it's been a busy season already you know it feels like there's been a lot of baseball already we've watched a lot of baseball and yet 100 games remain so no way am i going to say that the division is is over i'm just i'm not there but you know the the yankees are they're by far in a better position than the blue jays by far and they have a really good team they're in a great spot. They're getting a historic season from Judge. He might hit 60 homers. They're in the better spot. They're in in the driver's seat. But with so much baseball ahead, I really think the Jays are are in a good spot. And I, I hope, like, I tend to think that the path to the World Series probably goes through the Yankees in the American League this year. And I would love to see a Jays-Yankees ALCS. I think that'd be a lot of fun. This division, man, has just been, it's a meat grinder as long as I've been alive. 34 years and i've never seen an american league east that is not like just phenomenal and as we sit here today it's just it's getting better right so you look at like how good the yankees have been this year blue jays really good club as well as i mentioned the rays are 35 and 26 they're a game behind the blue jays they're right there the red Sox are four games over 500 now Mm -hmm. 33 and 29 watching the orioles this week play the blue jays and i and trying to like put myself in their shoes and like look at things from their perspective because you think about it with the blue jays every year coming in and it's like oh geez we gotta deal with these you know high resource teams and the yankees and the red Sox that are always gonna run high payrolls and like the yankees do things really really well analytically and on the international market and draft and develop and you know really smart trades and the red Sox have so much talent and the rays are like the best run organization and in baseball like the one of these model franchises that everyone's trying to emulate and they're so innovative and cutting edge man what a challenge for the blue jays if you're the orioles you take all of that and then you layer in the blue jays with a 165 million dollar payroll and all of this great tremendous young talent and and they're like winning a ton and also are now doing some cool things developmentally and, and analytically and have built out their r&d and you're the orioles and you're trying to rebuild right now is mike Elias, and you're just like oh my goodness <laughs> this division like how, how do you possibly win here if you're the orioles right like because you look around and you look at that team and you're seeing guys like Mountcastle and Rutschman and like Kyle Stowers is kind of an interesting player and you know, they got like a really good bullpen and I, I know that you know pitching is on the way starters are on the way and it's like if you're the Orioles you're trying to come out of this rebuild and you're looking up at this division at these four behemoths it's like how do we ever get into the postseason oh yeah and ownership troubles too in Baltimore I mean that's not good 
and then you know they have this this huge moment adley rushman it's like yeah he comes up so exciting for them and then like the jays like low-key promote gabriel moreno a few weeks <laughs> yeah. later and he he like does even better like out of those two players i know it's a small sample and rushman's a great prospect but i think moreno has been the more impressive of the two at the major league level so far so yeah it's it's wild it's a very very tough place to play i think that the best teams in the american league many of them do reside in the al east and so yeah to me the path to the world series goes through the yankees right now and so the jays one way or another have to figure out a way to you know knock them over in all likelihood because you're probably not going to get favors from you know uh, maybe you will but you have to proceed as though you are going to be the ones who knock them out the yankees 84.2 percent odds of winning the division per fan graphs the blue jays 13.6 odds so that would suggest yes it is in fact a little too early to call the division not too early to call up one gabriel moreno as you mentioned who is now a toronto blue jay pretty small sample that we've seen him at the big league level it's only three games we've already seen a lot of the tools that people are really excited about we've seen those sub two second pop times behind the plate we've seen the athleticism in his in his movements defensively we've seen the mature plate approach you know saw him work a really nice walk against Scooble the other day we've seen the three hit performance on Tuesday as well we've seen him turn around Gregory Soto inside out like 98 back up the middle we've it's in these first three games like we have seen Gabriel Moreno flash a lot of the tools that we are hearing about in the minors and a lot of the things that made him a top prospect worry about that batter let Moreno take care of that guy at first base if he goes Mateo, 14 for 16. He's going, and he's out. Another great throw from the rookie, Gabby Moreno. Wow, that's all I can say after that one. How quick! And we've also just seen, I think, a composure and a medal beyond the age of 22 it's another one of these young blue jays players where it's like you're 22 like you're saying the same thing about bo bichette when he came up it's like you're like what like you know you're, you're like in your early 20s like it just doesn't make sense there is a a maturity and a composure here and a calmness in some pretty high pressure situations and in some some spots where people would really be feeling the leverage that you don't commonly see in young players so if you're the blue jays you have to be just really encouraged with the way gabriel moreno has transitioned to the big leagues so far oh no doubt yeah they they are for sure the coaches and players that i heard from over the weekend were just singing his praises and saying you know not only the the tools but as you were saying the kind of composure to go up to a guy like kevin gosman in moreno's major league debut gosman you know 10-year major leaguer right like he's a guy who as he told us on atl like he faced Derek jeter like he's been around a while like it's it's not his first game in the majors and so moreno goes out and he's looking at gosman after gosman walks javi baez for the second time in a game and he's like are you good like what's going on here why are you walking (laughs) javi baez twice but that's the kind of thing where you know that's actually telling you know that's because he knows javi baez he knows gosman he knows like what's supposed to happen so there's some real composure there and then of course i mean the tools are just loud like you can't fake it you mentioned the pop times 1718 just quick quick release really strong arm down to second base his sprint speed going up the line like he's almost beating out infield singles really fast for a catcher and, and then of course the bat to ball skills are, are really good too so you can't fake that stuff that's just truly indicative of the skills that he brings and they're already playing uh, in these games yeah we knew about 
the pop times, I didn't know about the speed. <laughs> I didn't know he yeah. was that fast. I saw him get you know pinch run for on Tuesday night with Bradley Zimmer, and I'm like, yeah, okay, Bradley Zimmer's the fastest guy on the team, but is it that much of an upgrade? Gabriel Moreno's a lot faster than I knew that he was. Yeah. And look, maybe that was just like the like best home to first time he's ever had in his life. I, I don't know. It was the same thing with the pop time, right? Like when he got Victor Reyes on the weekend with the 1.83, I was kind of like, whoa, like that, that is like JT Real Muto stuff. But you don't know. You never know if that's just like the best throw he's made in his life. Like you need a better sample. But this it seems to be real like the speed thing yeah. is the one thing about him that's really caught me off guard here is like i did not know he was that fast well and again i mean you can't fake speed right like you're not going to fluke your way in if i if yeah. i was get out there and try to run that fast you're just not going to do it right like it's the he has that speed and i think his pop time i never got an official reading i don't know if you saw one arden but i was trying to just time it just on my phone and I think his pop time against Baltimore was actually faster. I had that one around one seven, uh, one like one seven five. And of course, that's very informal. I'm not. That's not like scientific. But I had that one as faster. I would be surprised if it was. I mean, one seven five. I don't know if anybody in baseball does one seven five. So, and that's why I'm saying it's not scientific. I want to see what what you know the Mike Petriellos of the world would yeah. have to say about that. But I, but it was. I think it was faster. Honestly, I I didn't look it up, but I I would be surprised at one seven five. Like that would be a crazy number. Um, here's yeah. like an interesting thought that came across my mind. Like, what's the relative value of that? Because like that's a really that's a great tool, right? Like having like the ability to like to control a running game right and to throw out base runners gabriel moreno threw out more than half the base still attempts against him like in triple a this year like again things you cannot fake um you know like, that's pretty impressive but at the big league level where like we are seeing way less base stealing than we ever have an a point in this game because the game isn't paying for it so if you're a, a ball player at first base and you're kind of calculating like you're doing the cost benefit analysis on this and it's so the possible cost is i get thrown out i cost my team an out i cost the guy at home plate a ribby like he might just go deep and i look like a fool on national television what's the possible benefit well, the game doesn't pay for stolen bases anymore, so there isn't really much benefit there, right? So, like, that's why you're not seeing that many stolen bases this year. And in, in, in a league where there are so few stolen bases, what do you think the relative value is? Or, like, what do you think the real benefit is of having a catcher behind the plate who has this cannon of an arm? I think it's a good question. I think it's still pretty big value. I mean, we saw... Zach Collins at times behind the plate for the Jays this year. And he'd be on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, his pop times are like 2-1. You know, that's pretty slow for a major league catcher. And you're right. You don't see, even when Collins is behind the plate, it's not like other teams are just running wild. They're pretty judicious. And they're trying to steal with a very high success rate, above 80%. And, and oftentimes that works. But I just think that, you know, if you ask any GM or any coach, any manager, the difference is there. Um, and to quantify it, I mean, you could quantify it. I don't think that it would be a matter of like one war per year even. But I think game to game, inning to inning, situation to situation, it can be a big deterrent for runners. They're probably going to get smaller leads. You're probably going to have them a little bit less comfortable on the bases. You can steal a few outs with pickoffs. Yeah, I just think that we're, we're talking about small incremental advantages here. But I, I do think that much like pitch framing, where one individual pitch isn't going to totally change the complexion of a game, but if if you have that presence there for an extended period, I would think that 
it's significant. And I'd have to reflect more to kind of come up with a guesstimate as to what, you know, how, how much that actually matters. But I think it's real. I think it matters. Yeah, I think it's a composite, right? Like it works in concert with everything else, with the framing, like with, with the receiving, with the blocking, with the game calling, like you said, with the you know, little back picks, right? That's another cost benefit thing, right? Is like trying to throw behind a runner at first base or at third base is like, look, you get one of these cue balls that pitchers keep complaining about and it slips out of your hand and you airmail that thing into the outfield and now you just gave up 90 feet at least, right? So that's another like thing where you'd really, you know, better be sure that you're you're going to get the ball there that you're going to execute and that you have a realistic chance of making something happen here you know because the potential cost could be could be severe i think you know the question now is you know for a lot of blue jays fans is just kind of like okay what's the playing time look like going forward like how does this all play out you got moreno and kirk on the big league roster right now and like i think kirk is the better hitter Moreno is the better defender. So it would be like pretty easy to kind of see like, okay, maybe Moreno catches three out of five. Kirk catches two out of five with one or two DH days in there as well. Moreno gets his days off. Kirk gets his days off. You've got this impending roster sort of tweak coming up this weekend where you need to basically like remove a pitcher and add a position player. And the Blue Jays right now, like, aren't giving Bradley Zimmer a ton of playing time. Like they would probably already say like, yeah, we're good on <laughs> a position player front, but they're going to have to add one. So do you add a Zach Collins so that I you think can so. then have Kirk and Moreno in the lineup at the same time and not feel so naked late in games where it's like, Hey, Santiago Espinal, you might be catching. And then beyond that, Danny Jansen getting a healthier range of motion again in that in that finger. We had we were told that like it's might not be as long of an absence with the fractures you typically expect them to because he has the pin in that fifth metacarpal from previously having fractured it, and that's helping stabilize it. And it's not quite as severe. So Danny Jansen's return on the horizon. I mean, as you cast forward, how do you sort of see things shaking out here as the Blue Jays look at playing time between Moreno, Kirk, Collins, Jansen? I think the way you outlined it makes some sense. I mean, I think with Kirk and Moreno, they're both good defensive catchers and they both kind of bring different things. Kirk's a better framer, I think, and Moreno, I mean, the arm, you're just not going to beat that arm. So they both give you some different things and you're comfortable with either one. So I think this the situation you outlined there where it's kind of two for Kirk out of five, three for Moreno, I think that makes sense for now. And then you're making sure that Moreno at that point, he's playing four or five games a week, which is good. He's getting his reps. He's developing in the majors. That's a good setup. And then Kirk is still in the lineup. Most days, you obviously want that because he's been phenomenal. Right center field. It's going to split the outfielders, and it's up against the fence. Guerrero around third on his way home, and the Blue Jays have an early lead. When Charlie Montoyo moved Kirk up to the cleanup spot, he wanted to separate Teoscar and Vladdy and put a hot bat in between them. And it has worked out for him ever since they have put him in that cleanup And just spot. as an aside on those two guys, they were both signed in 2016. The total cost to sign them oh, in no. that period, $55,000 total to sign those guys. What do you think the Blue Jays spend on like baseballs every year? 
Right. You know what I mean? What do you think they spend on pine tar? <laughs> right. <laughs> on hot like, dogs. It is just, yeah, little ATV vehicles to go and cart things from one right. end of their Dunedin complex to the other. I mean, that might be 55K. It's wild. And, I, you know, I, I hope both those guys get the chance to get paid very well in their major league careers. So I don't, I'm not delighting in saying that these guys are so underpaid. But I'm just <laughs> saying, hey, if you're, if you're the Blue Jays, if you're a major league organization and you identified these two players in that one summer, that is franchise changing. That's part of the reason. I mean, we talk about coming out of a rebuild. We talk about coming out of a, a down period. That's what gets you out of it is if you have two major leaguers impact both sides of the ball and you're able to pull that off in the course of one summer in 2016. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's to get back to the roster stuff, like I, I do think Collins will be the guy when they have to shrink by a pitcher. There isn't really like another player who's like screaming out for a promotion to AAA, right? Like, and you know, you're not going to bring Jordan Groshans up here to not play, right? So, you know, I think Groshans' opportunity would need to be created by an injury. So, and you don't need another outfielder because Bradley Zimmer's on the roster and doesn't play at all. <laughs> so I think it would be Collins to come up give you a little lefty thump off the bench maybe he dh's every once in a while but realistically he probably doesn't play that much he just kind of gives you protection um insurance insurance right and you have kirk and moreno in the lineup like the real interesting question to me is when danny jansen is healthy and if you get to a situation and look this is like a lot of assumptions baked into this right but if you get to the situation where jansen moreno kirk are all healthy and productive what do you do then because there is not enough playing time to go around at that point if you are still intending to get george springer regular dh days and vladimir guerrero jr regular dh days and then oh by the way the odd like matt chapman's wrist is barking day or you know like teoscar hernandez has a little hip thing so we're gonna get him in the dh spot or lourdes has a little quad thing get him a dh day right like the odd things that come up if you're still playing to use a DH spot like that, there literally just is not enough playing time for Kirk, Moreno, Jansen if you want them all playing regularly. So what do you think? And again, a lot of assumptions here. These circumstances yes. might not play out. But if it got to that point, what do you think happens there? Yeah, no, for sure. I think, and first of all, I do agree Collins is the guy you want up because he yeah. just gives you insurance. So yeah, they should bring him up and that frees them up if they want to pinch run for Kirk, for instance, when he's the DH. Now, Okay, what happens if Jansen is healthy in, what, three weeks' time? Two weeks' time? Could be sooner. Yeah, we'll see. Like, I think there's probably going to be an update coming on him later this week, and I think it might be a pretty positive one. Wow. I mean, if he's ready that soon, then that would be... Uh, I'm not saying he's going to be ready later this week, things. but I, you know, when he first got hurt, it was like, yeah, this might only be like a two- or three-week thing. It might not be the typical five-, six-week fracture thing. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. So the bottom line is whenever that happens, we'll see what the other health status is on the team because that'll inform it. Who's healthy, who's not. I think if you could come up with a situation, because none of those guys are really going to play other positions. Moreno has not played another position this year. and He's the one that would have the most uh, versatility and skill to do it. But you're also yeah. not going to displace Matt Chapman to put a catcher who hasn't played there. Like you're just not going to do that, and you're not going to put him at second base. So where are you playing him? You know your your corner outfielders are actually hitting now, so it's not like you're in a in a rush to get him there. So realistically, none of these guys are playing different positions. You could concoct a situation where Kirk is DHing most of the time, 
Moreno and Jansen are splitting catcher and they're all on the roster. But if that starts to feel too forced and if there starts to be a lack of playing time for Moreno, I see no problem with optioning him. I, I, I mean, you're certainly not in a rush to do that. But if you need that DH spot for whoever it is, Flatty or Springer or Teoscar, then there's absolutely no problem with using that DH spot for those guys, sending Moreno to AAA and knowing that he'll be back on this team in September and probably for the playoffs. Do you worry about what that does for his psyche if he's playing well at the time? Like if he's continuing to play the way we've seen him play in these first three games? Honestly, I wouldn't. I think if he's playing well, his psyche is probably going to be in a good spot. I think that he seems pretty even keeled. He knows he's 22 years old, you know, and and they're not optioning it. Like if, if they kept, you know, Heineman and Zach Collins up in place of Moreno, then I could see that being frustrating. But Jansen and Kirk are legit. He's friends with Kirk. Um, Jansen is, is someone who's, who's helped him a lot. He understands that those guys are ahead of him as far as seniority on this team. So I don't know if you view it differently, but to me, I wouldn't worry about his psyche at this point because he's, he's had a couple good games, but he hasn't fully established himself as that big leaguer yet. Yeah, and I think that him his ego being bruised would be kind of like they're just the risk you have to take at that point because there isn't another solution short of like getting Alejandro Kirk on one of those medieval like uh like extension things and just like adding maybe three to four to five inches to his yeah. frame so he could play first base and be Evan Gaddis. That would solve the issue. If Alejandro Kirk was six four, issue solved. <laughs> Evan Gaddis, baby. Right. First base DH catcher. But Alejandro Kirk can't play first base right now. And Dan Jansen's not going to do that either. So um it's like it's an interesting setup because Kirk is the best hitter of the three, I would say. Moreno's the best defender of the three, I would say. And Jansen's the best game manager of the three, I would say, just in terms of like yeah, everything that goes into that game calling, knowing the, staff. the pitching staff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like understanding strategy, knowing what to do when things are going wrong, reading swings, like all those little intricacies that there are no columns for on fan graphs. That's mm-hmm. all important. <laughs> that all matters. The season goes on too. So like, like they all have three really distinct things that they are really good at. So it'd be great to be able to like use them situationally and deploy them ideally, but you don't, the roster's not big enough. So, and also you need Moreno playing at least half the time the rest of the way, I would say, yeah. you know, for, you know, developmentally, because look, he's still a 22 year old and you still want him to keep getting better and being exposed to high levels of competition. That might, that would be another reason why I think the Blue Jays would probably opt to option Moreno in that circumstance, just because we want him playing regularly the rest of yeah. the way. We don't want him sitting on our bench for as much, you know, work as he's going to get in with Louis Hurtado and John Schneider, like for as beneficial as that's going to be catching raw stripping bullpens. The best um, thing for him developmentally is playing in game reps, live action. So if the most realistic way for him to play regularly is at AAA, you say, we have one of those really, really good problems and we have like a major league capable catcher at AAA. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the there's no problem with that. That's part of the reality of deep organizations. They sometimes option good players and they sometimes put good players on the bench. I think especially given the context of 2021 for Moreno and the amount of time that he missed, if you're the Jays, you want to make sure that he's playing regularly in 2022. So especially for July and August, he's got to be playing regularly. 
you get to September, you get down the stretch, that shifts. It becomes about winning. It becomes about winning the the first round by, if that's in play, making it to the playoffs with the best position possible, advancing in the playoffs. At that point, you're not worried about development. But for the summer, you can't have another season where he's playing like 40 games and getting like 200 at-bats. Like you got to get him some real reps here because he is so important to the long-term uh, future of this franchise. Here's a question that I don't know the answer to and that maybe you do. Say the Yankees win the AL East and the Blue Jays finish in second, but they have a better record than the winners of the AL Central and AL West. Would they get the first round by? Or does it have to be not. the right? It has to be. It's the yes. two division winners with the best record. Yes. So exactly. even if the second place team in the AL East had a better. Yeah. So I don't know that that buy is going to be on the table. But that, wouldn't that be an we'll interesting see. scenario if that happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's. And I mean, you can make a case that it should just be the two best records, especially as we move toward a more balanced schedule starting in 23. Ben, I'd make a case that we blow up these divisions and that it does not matter that American League and National League, what's the difference? Why do we still yeah. have these things? It doesn't matter anymore. Blow it all up. One league, 30 teams. Why, are, why do we even separate it all? You can still like figure just out one schedules. division regionally yeah why is this just one division yeah. why do we even separate them out what does it matter yeah it doesn't matter anymore you got the dh in both leagues more balanced These schedule next year questions. like you said expansion on the horizon soon there's gonna be 32 teams what are we doing my gripe with all this is the shift i can't believe we're gonna disallow the shift i cannot yeah. believe it i love four-man outfields i think they're so cool i can't believe we're gonna block the shift oh, I, it's I anti-competitive it. is what it is it's oh it you, is. you guys figured something out no we don't like that it's just yeah i mean we yeah that's probably for another day as well but it is it is let the shift happen it is not it's not in the spirit of the game to ban the shift like you said that's an off-season topic when we're uh, scraping for things to talk about right now we got a a team that's in second place in the american league east to talk about uh and when we come back we are going to talk pitching obviously we gotta talk about hunjin ryu and how the blue jays might look at uh their rotation going forward gotta talk bullpen gotta talk maybe a little trade deadline so much more to talk about when we continue on at the letters it continues on at the letters arden zwelling ben nicholson smith our producers nick andrade and christian ryan it is time now for keeping it light Brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Ben, don't look now. Like, six weeks till the trade deadline? Yeah. Like, we're getting there. It's trade season coming up. Crazy thing this year is that the uh, the amateur draft and the trade deadline sort of, like, bump right up against each other. It's going to be some very busy time frame for MLB front offices as they try to handle the draft and, and trade season as well. Uh, and look, you got expanded playoffs this year. So it's going to take a little bit more time for buyers and sellers to get sorted out. It's going to be easier for clubs to you know argue that, yeah, we still got a chance of sneaking in to the expanded postseason field. Maybe we can grab that third wild card. But Ben, which of those sort of fringy teams bubble teams that might be buyers might be sellers not quite clear yet do you have your eye on and are you most interested in seeing going forward to me it's the angels it's just a question of like they have Shohei Otani for two more years for this year and next year and then he's a free agent so if they don't win now then 
you know, they've essentially wasted the prime of a historic player alongside Mike Trout. So the pressure's on, I think, in Los Angeles. Obviously, they fired Joe Madden, and they're they're now under 500. So they need to make some gains. Presumably, they're going to have some resources to add if they're close. But if they keep falling back, then do they become a seller? And does it become all about 2023? They've got guys like Noah Syndergaard, Michael Lorenzen. They could be appealing to other teams in trade. I don't think Shohei Otani is going anywhere. I, I think that teams around baseball could offer their four or five best prospects together, and you still wouldn't necessarily get Shohei Otani because you know you don't get better by trading the best player in baseball. But uh, I'm fascinated. I'm I'm really curious to see where that leads because the Angels have just been unable to make the most of these two incredible talents. So I'm going to pick a team from the same division. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because these would be the two teams that would, you know, maybe be like on the bubble in that division that the Astros are going to win. And for me, it's the Seattle Mariners. Uh, it'll be interesting to see just like how the Angels do going forward and the Mariners do going forward. Because I think the Mariners also have some interesting pieces, particularly from a Blue Jays perspective, that could be available come trade deadline time if things do not go their way adam frazier front of mind obviously like a, a guy that i thought the blue jays should go and get last year play a little second for you play a little outfield for you lefty bat not having you know the same season that he has in the past but you know that it's in there and that he can be a really productive hitter um mitch hanniger could be on the block and you know not an ideal fit for the blue jays as like a, a righty bat but you know the the bat plays and he's good and and sometimes it gets down to it and and that's your best option so maybe that's someone and maybe if i'm the blue jays i'm trying to blow the seattle mariners away with an offer for jesse winker who has one more year of arbitration so they don't have to move on from him but left-handed bat can play like not a tremendous defender but like and in this scenario i'm seeing rymel tapia going the other way so you know you're opening up that sort of some left field playing time there for him great hitter lefty bat sprays it all over the yard um obviously you got that other year of control so if you're the blue jays you're thinking like pretty pretty good prospect going the other way (laughs) like a, a top five guy as well as tapia as well as more than that Probably, but if I'm the Blue Jays and it's when now time and I'm thinking this is a guy who might actually fill a roster hole for me, not just this season, but next, maybe I'm I'm looking to sell Jerry Topoto on uh on trading Jesse Winker to me and, and playing it off to to his fan base that oh yeah, I know we've got Ramel Tapia who actually we think is a better fit for us and and we're doing the same thing we did last trade deadline where we're we're kinda, you know, selling and buying at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one for sure. It's, you know, whenever you have those droughts, it creates like a little bit of pressure for that market, for that fan base. Angels have one, Mariners. The Phillies, too, I think have one of those top droughts in baseball, and they're trying to uh, navigate that. Of course, they fired their manager, too. So, you know, for the Jays, we talked about that for a long time. And, you know, finally they ended that drought of 22 years in 2015. Now they're going to make the playoffs. The Blue Jays are going to be in the 2022 playoffs. And so it's less about just getting there. It's more about actually making the most of that opportunity once you're there. So looking forward to the trade deadline, like we've been thinking a lot about you know, lefty outfielders, obviously. We've been thinking a lot about relief 
options. And I guess now we're going to have to think a lot about starters too. Like yeah. you mentioned, guys like El Lorenzen and Syndergaard from the Angels. Like if you're the Blue Jays now, you're in a position where, yeah, you probably want to acquire somebody capable of starting at the deadline because Hunjin Ryu is going to be unavailable for the rest of the season. Ross Stripling is in your rotation already, and your depth has already been tapped into there. And beyond him, it is Thomas Hatch, Casey Lawrence, Max Castillo. And that is it. And that is not top-line, front-end, great depth. So if you're the Blue Jays, you're looking at this trade deadline and thinking, yeah, we're probably not only going to want to go out and address the, the lefty thing, the outfield thing, the relief thing, but the rotation thing too. Agreed with all of that. I think that's very fair. Um, and I guess let's start with the rotation because Stripling has been so good and he's really held his own. I think you're comfortable with him. Kikuchi, I mean, man, you know, we're looking at 12 starts in. More than half of those, he has not gone five innings. The command is not there. He is not attacking hitters within the strike zone often enough. He is walking too many hitters, too much hard contact. It's not good. It's not a good scene. And he still has the stuff. We know he has the track record. He was an all-star this time last year. So, you know, you're not giving up on this guy. He's He's got a three-year commitment here in Toronto, but it's not looking good. And so as long as that's happening too, you still need to explore that market. You really need to know what's out there from a starting pitching standpoint. Because even if you turn Kikuchi around, even if Stripling stabilizes, the guys behind them, there's a lot of question marks there. And someone else might need a breather. What if Barrios needs a few weeks? Or Manoa, you know, slips going down the dugout steps again and, and needs to miss a couple starts. You need to know what's out there on the market. That's the thing. Like, it's incredible the Blue Jays have gone to June 15th using only six starters. What are the odds? So that's going to continue yeah. that somebody else isn't going to need a breather, that something else isn't going to happen. Of course, something's going to happen. It's baseball. So yeah, the Blue Jays absolutely need to be looking at addressing that depth because they are like very close to Thomas Hatch taking regular turns in the rotation. And hey, maybe that works out, right? Like who knows? But I think if you're the Blue Jays, you want a better insurance policy in place than they have right now. And like you said, with Kikuchi not going deep into games, that's stressing your bullpen every time he's out. Ross Stripling has only been trusted to go two times through a lineup to this point. So that's likely to stress your bullpen as well when he's out although i don't know if you're the blue jays do you allow him to see more of the opposition let me put it to you this way like which of these claims do you agree with most ross stripling okay. is being successful because he's only seeing a lineup two times or ross stripling's success suggests he should see a lineup a third time huh i mean i would i would agree mostly with the first one so I don't think his success alone means he should face a lineup the third time. For instance, he faces the Yankees on Friday. Let's say he gets through it twice. I'm not looking at that and I'm not saying, okay, great. Like he's figured out the Yankees now. Like that's it. Uh, you know, let's, let's put him out there and, and have Judge um, and Stanton face him a third time. To me, I say, great job, Ross. You've done it again. Thank you for your efforts. We are now handing the ball over to Jimmy Garcia. And I see aspects of both, but really i think that you know he's been really effective in this role partly because he's not getting overexposed and i think that that's there's nothing wrong with that that's the case for almost every major league pitcher the more times a hitter sees them the the more familiar that hitter becomes and the advantage starts to shift toward the hitter um so he's not an exception in that sense but that's where i would land there 
I am curious to see it. I don't know if we will, because earlier this season, when Ross Stripling was stretched out and taking regular turns, when Ryu was was out of the rotation again, I mean, he still didn't get to see a third trip through. So the Blue Jays have really like tipped their hand there. And look, like it makes sense. Ross Stripling stuff is not overwhelming. Like he's kitchen sink guy, right? Like he's like, I got to mix and match and sequence differently, and I got to work all over the zone and have five pitches like and throw for strikes. Any part of the zone each hitter just to keep guys guessing but like the more that hitters see him and understand what he's featuring on a given night the better they're going to lock in on it right so i think that friday is going to be a really interesting test for him really against the yankees right he's coming off of two like really really strong really crisp efficient outings um, but not against the greatest competition. And now he's going to go up against one of the best lineups in baseball. And like, we're, we're going to like, we're going to see, right? Because Ross Stripling, like he works with pretty thin margins. Like he'll tell you that, right? Like his command with his fastball, particularly like has to be real precise, like has to be very exact because it is still just 91, 92, 93. Like I know he's got like two to three 95s in him every game that he can kind of deploy when he needs to but yeah it's not you know an an overwhelming fastball and right now what's working for him is that he's got such an array of offerings that he's all throwing for strikes and he just seems to be in a really nice groove with like all of his pitches which is great but if he takes the mound one night and it's like oh geez i don't have my slider tonight or it's like ooh, change up ultimate field pitch and i do not have the feel for it tonight where do you go to that? Like, I just think the Friday against the Yankees is going to be a really interesting outing for Ross Stripling. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And he's been great. He's been really essential to the staff. It's easy to imagine where they would be without him and probably not oh. nearly in as good a position as they are right now. What a luxury. Yeah, it, it really is. That's sixth starter in baseball, honestly. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. And I, I don't think the Jays want to see who's behind him. I really don't. So then that really underscores the need to pursue help in the in the rotation i don't think it's urgent but i think you have to know what that market is and i think the same goes for relief because you know you wrote about this uh the other day at sportscent.ca but they're in a stretch now where they haven't had to use their top relievers that much jordan romano in particular has had some rest which is great but there will be times where they have to rely on jimmy garcia and simber and romano and i'm not putting trevor richards in that group anymore because he is not pitching well so he is not in that trusted trio but you really want to have more and you want to have more strikeouts. And so that's a need that we've been identifying all season long. To me, it hasn't gone anywhere. They need to be adding relief. That is a must at the trade deadline. The Blue Jays bullpen is in as good of a position as it's been all season. And that's a credit yeah. to the starting staff, right? Like, that's a credit to what Ross Stripling's done. And then like what, you know, Alec Manoa's like, we could just come on here and talk for 40 minutes about Alec Manoa yes, every, every like, week. week, right? Because like the guy has been one of the best starters in the American league. And it's just, it's just remarkable what he's doing this season. Guy doesn't have, doesn't have bad starts. He hasn't had a bad start this season, which is like, you even expect like even the, the Coles, the Verlanders, the best starters in this game, every once in a while, they have a rough start. He hasn't had a rocky outing. So it's a credit to like to what he's done and Brio's right in the ship. And obviously like Gosman's been really strong. It's a credit to how good the starting rotation is that the bullpen is in a great position. But it takes like a three-game series for the bullpen to be in a really bad position <laughs> all of a sudden. Like it, it happens quick, right? So like if you're Charlie Montoyo and Pete Walker right now, you're entering, you know, this game here on Wednesday against the Orioles, Thursday against the Orioles, you're thinking, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. But that can change in an awful hurry so like to your point you know one or two relievers absolutely 
need to be acquired here. I think Nate Pearson could be a real addition from within in like kind of like a two inning role, essentially. Like think about when Spencer Strider debuted earlier this year. It was like, yeah, you can face six to nine hitters, see how it goes, right? If it's going well, we'll extend you. If it's not going well, we won't. Obviously, Strider's gone on to, yeah, you know, he's in the rotation now and, and doing more. But like that, just think about that role of like, yeah, maybe we'll get a trip through out of you. Or maybe you're just going to get, you know, five quick outs for us. Kind of what do we need on the given night? But like having like, a leverage reliever that you can kind of extend a bit. Um, I think that's the role for Nate Pearson, but obviously he has to get there and he has to have the velo and be locating and in the zone and needs to earn that. But I, I do think that can be one solution with the bullpen and one addition, but there are still additional ones that need to come from outside the organization. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, when I asked Ross Atkins about this the other day, I mean, what does this look like? What What kind of additions would you guys be looking to make? He was vague and understandably so. I understand not wanting to spell out every one of your um, thoughts to the opposition because then it probably makes you a little bit easier to negotiate against in trades. He doesn't want that. So we all know, you know, well, yeah, we can kind of read between the lines pretty easily and just watch the games, right? You just watch the games and it tells you. So, and, and I think too, we also get information from what the Jays have done in the past. So even though Atkins, when, when I asked him that, he said, you know, maybe some depth pieces, maybe some complementary pieces. Okay, you know, maybe that's the case. We also know, though, that last year they acquired Jose Barrios at the deadline. Last offseason, they went out and swung big for Kevin Gosman. They tried to get Justin Verlander. They had talks with him that were productive. They they tried to get Noah Syndergaard. So, you know, those are not the just depth pieces. Those are not just complementary pieces. Those are impact major league players. So, I'm sure that they'll explore deals for some depth type acquisitions, but I'm equally sure that they're going to get a feel on the market for the very best players out there. So is that a David Bednar with the Pirates? Is that, you know, they're going to determine what that looks like, but I think their eyes are going to be open. They've always been really active at the deadline, even when they were selling, right? Like they were really active. Yeah. But like the last couple of years, like you think about in 20, right? Like going out and like getting Robbie Ray, getting Ross Stripling, getting Taiwan Walker, right? Like this is... They've been active at the deadline. Like they look at that as like a point where we can like do some things. And it's not always just for like you make a good point with Brios. Like it's not always just for the final two months of the year. I guess in 20 of the final month of the year. Yeah. It's we're going to get Robbie Ray because we think we're actually gonna like re-sign him and help yeah, him get stripling. better. We're going to get Ross Stripling, who's gonna be impacted. Right. That came that 2020 deadline deal. Kendall Williams and Ryan Noda, was it? Right? Like yep. what a deal. We're going to get Jose Barrios because we believe we can extend him, right? Like we know we've got the extra year. That's kind of like with the Winker thing, right? Where I was like, that's why I think that kind of makes some sense. Cause usually if they're looking to acquire like that more than a depth piece, like you said, they would look for some club control beyond this year or a realistic scenario like with Ray, where they're like, yeah, we can resign this guy or with Brios where like when they acquired Brios, they believed without even knowing him that well, they believed we, we can extend this guy like we think we can keep him a Toronto Blue Jay for some time this is not just about the the playoff push we're about to go on this is about future years as well absolutely and then you know you have your fallbacks if if that doesn't work if the prices are too high if they're asking for Pearson and Groshans and Relvis Martinez and you want to hold on to those guys then maybe you get David Robertson from the Cubs and Shy's guy Cole Calhoun and that's your deadline you know like there are worse there are worse deadlines their team is already really good but they they need to go into this deadline really trying to 
augment, really trying to find ways to make this roster not better for August 15th, but better for October 10th and October 20th and October 30th, because that's the goal. They're not in here just to make the playoffs. Like that's just, that's just the beginning. It has to be just the beginning. And so we might as well end here because this all sort of like dances around the fact that Hunjin Ryu is not going to pitch for the Toronto Blue Jays for the rest of 2022. Might never pitch for the Toronto Blue Jays again. He's going to have surgery this week with uh, Dr. Neil Elitrash in uh, Los Angeles. Elitrash, a guy who has operated on him twice already in his career. This is going to be his third procedure with Elitrash. And we don't know exactly what the procedure is going to be. At this point, we do know that the recovery timeline is going to be an extended one, but will it be like a full revision of, you know, like a full Tommy John? Will it be just a partial one? That's not something we're going to know until after the procedure has been completed. So we're, we're working with somewhat incomplete information here, but we, we do know like there's, you know, the best case scenario is that Hunjin Ryu returns to this club in the second half of 2023. That's like best case. And this is, Somewhat part and parcel for his career, really. Like when you look at it, like like I said, he's already been operated on twice by the guy who's going to operate on him this week. Like he's been on the IL quite a bit in his career. He's dealt with this stuff. You know, obviously, Ryu was a tremendous pitcher for the Blue Jays in 2020. Cy Young candidate, healthy throughout, like helped get them to the playoffs. 2021 was, you know, a, a bit more hit and miss, but still logged a ton of innings and a lot of starts for them. Like was... Um, you know, pretty healthy, like those two IL stints for like 10 days and that was it. And then now you're, we are seeing him be unavailable for a while because of this injury. I mean, with all that context, considering all that, what the Blue Jays have already got and what they're looking at going ahead with Hunjin Ryu, how are you feeling about the four-year $80 million deal that he signed over the winter of 2019-2020? Success? failure do you want to undo it would you do it again like where do you stand on that yeah that's a perfect way to end the pod i think um so i'll look at this through two lenses okay so one is knowing what the blue jays knew at the time this is kind of the fair way to assess it knowing what they knew at the time knowing that the rotation at the time was like tj zoik and like sam gavilio yeah knowing that they had all kinds of money to spend and ryu was a really good pitcher did that decision make sense i would say yeah I would say that decision made sense. I would say that was justifiable. Don't have a problem with that decision. Now, did it work? You get one season, as you outlined, one Cy Young finalist season, one okay season, two lost seasons. That's not good. Like, that's okay, maybe. It's not good. It's not very good production for $80 million to get one you know season that was a shortened season, mind you. And that's kind of what you get for 80 million. Not great. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. I'm not saying, you know, fire Atkins or, you know, this is, this is like a horrible, I get it. I think the call made sense at the time. I'm sure I wrote that at the time and said that at the time, I think it made sense. But in hindsight, now that we know how it played out for the most part, I don't think it was great. What about you? So here's how I would look at it. And it kind of it works perfectly because baseball reference war and fan graphs war, right? And what we know about baseball reference war uses ERA. So it's like what actually happened. Fan graphs war uses FIP. So it's like what should have happened. In this case, it doesn't matter because he ends up at four and a half wins on both of them so far as a Blue mm-hmm. Jay. And look, maybe he comes back back half of 23 
sure. tax on another half win, maybe. Sure. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna work call with it five. Yeah, right. Call sure. it five. Yeah, but I'm gonna work with four and a half right now. You paid eighty million dollars for four and a half wins. That's almost eighteen million dollars per win. Yep. That's not good, right? No. That's that's not what you want. Now you understand going into any free agent deal for a guy in their mid thirties. It doesn't matter if you're a starting pitcher, if you're an outfielder, if you're an infielder, you're typically buying into some decline, right? Like you are typically buying into this guy, like to this thing being front loaded in terms of value. And you're going to like get great value early on. And then over the back half, things might get a little dicey. So for the blue Jays early on, Hey, they got what they paid for there, right? 2020 Cy Young season. Blue Jays obviously don't make the playoffs last season without Hunjin Ryu in a lot of ways. Like he, like it was like a pivot point for the franchise, right? Cause he had all these young players coming up into the big leagues. The Blue Jays went out and made their first like really big free agent splash in a long time. They like broke the like impasse with Scott Boris in the, mm-hmm. you know, I just I still remember the Hunjin Ryu press conference and sitting in that room at Rogers Center and looking up at the dais and it's like there's Ryu Ross Atkins but I'm sure Shapiro was up there and Scott freaking Boris with like Blue mm-hmm. Jays logos around him and Hunjin Ryu's wearing a Blue Jays jersey and like Scott Boris is singing the praises of the Blue Jays franchise like that blue flu was cured you could not have imagined that only three to four years prior right so I do think it was a big statement for the franchise i don't know what value <laughs> per win you put on statements and you put on you know repairing a relationship with a really powerful agent and with like signaling to the baseball world that you're willing to spend because you could have signaled that another way george springer could have been that signal right like yep. you, you could have done it a year later i don't think that like if you show up to a front uh, free agent's doorstep with the term and value that they're looking for I don't think that he's going to think, yeah, but you didn't sign Hunjin Ryu a year ago, so I don't think yeah. he's serious. It's like, no, yeah. you're putting the pieces of paper in front of him that yeah. say, like, yes, if you sign this, we will pay you this, right? So I don't know how much value I put into the statement. I think there were intangible benefits, you know, with the young players, like, on the roster who were able to learn from a veteran like Hunjin Ryu and see his routines and how he goes about his business. I think it's been big for Alec Manoa. He's told us that. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it's been big for a guy like Nate Pearson to see how Hunjin Ryu goes about his business. Um, you know, I'm sure it's been big just not just from a pitcher perspective, but just from a young player in the game perspective. Guys like Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to just kind of see what a, a vet, what somebody who's gone to the place they want to get to, how he does things. A guy who's won, right? A guy who's been with the Dodgers and a guy who's you know performed well on really good teams. So there are intangible benefits there. I don't know how to put a value on it. I'm sure somebody in the Blue Jays front office could, but they're not going to waste their time on that right now. So I'm getting to it, Ben. All this like coming around on all this, right? So there is some value there, but I still cannot look at $18 million per win and say that it was a good deal because I think that when the Blue Jays signed it, they they expected him to be really good in 20, which he was. They expected him to kind of regress back to a league average guy, which he did in 21. 21, league average pitcher. It was a 102 ERA+. plus. League average pitcher in 21 gave you 31 starts, 170 innings. Perfect. And I bet you the Blue Jays expected that over the next two seasons, 22 and 23, it was going to be around that 140, 150 innings, maybe even 125, but somewhere in that 95 to 100 ERA plus range. And you're paying for that decline, but you still get 
league average, innings eating guy and all that intangible stuff. And now you're not getting that. And now that is out the window for at least this year and the first half of next year, likely for the rest of the contract. So to me, I don't think that the Hunjin Ryu contract was a win. No. Yeah. Agreed. I think um, it's less of a, you know, something like the Tanner Roark deal. Okay. Like that was just a, you know, it just, <laughs> that was work. not a like, win. That was well. like, yes, I agree. No, that, and that was signed the same winter. And again, I could understand the need because you, you know what? They had money to spend and they needed starting pitching and Roark had a good track record. That one we can say universally, like it just, it, it was just, it didn't work. It did not work. Now the Ryu one, there's a bit more nuance to it as yes. you talked about there, but I still think in the end, was it money well spent? Not really. But was it an important step for the franchise in some ways? Yeah, it was. It was. And so it's certainly not an abject failure of a deal. There are certainly some good things that you can point to, including a Cy Young finalist season. And I would put it in the kind of mild, you know, negative if you're looking at it from a value standpoint. It's not just, it's not all about money. It's not all about, are you getting dollars per war? But if you're looking at it through that lens, which of course general managers are paid to do, then, eh, you know, it was probably a mild loss for the Jays from that lens. Yeah, and you look at it as well in the like it's not like Ryu was their guy from the jump that winter either, right? Like the Blue Jays had, you know, talked to other free agent starting pitchers that winter and like were, you know, interested in other guys and it was that was the winter that like Boris kind of had so many pitchers on the market. It was almost just kind of like picking where they were going to go. That's some more nuance as well. Right. Like there's, you know, and I think the Blue Jays are very happy to have Hunchin Ryu in their uniform. I think fans loved cheering for him and loved watching him on the mound. I enjoyed watching him pitch. Like it was a lot of fun, like just seeing like this crafty lefty big guy on the mound generating soft contact, like cool change ups that would get awkward swings and like cool, like, you know, three really nice cutters and, and, you know, big breaking curveballs and like really, um, commanded a game, like really sort of dictated the pace of a game and a really, cool way so like i don't think the blue jays regret it but it, like it's also it's hard to sort of like sit here and say that it was a successful deal as well just from a totally cold and like objective and detached standpoint but i do allow that it's not purely an exchange of of war for dollars like i right. do think there are other intangible nuances to this deal that the blue jays benefited from and as a big market team the Blue Jays can absorb this and just move right along. Mm-hmm. It is fine. It is. This is the beauty of being a big market team because when you spend on these players and it doesn't work out, it's actually fine because, you know, as long as you have, and you can't just do it through free agency as the Phillies can tell you, but, you know, as long as you have some of these players, like we talked about in the first half, Moreno and Kirk signed in one summer for $55,000 total. Yep. Like <laughs> that's going to offset a lot of these things, right? So it opens these doors up and then you have Springer. Okay. George Springer. That's more like how free agency should work. Or if you're, if you're the team, he's an elite player. He's playing like an elite player. Great. And of course he'll decline too. But for now he's a, he's an elite player. So you can absorb this if you're the Jace. It's okay. It's, and, and that's not something that every team can say. And you understand this possibility going into it as well. The Blue Jays understood with George Springer that like maybe we're having a similar conversation in 2025 or 2026. Sure. And George Springer's on the books for like $24 million and maybe he's not the same guy. But yeah, like you mentioned, like I would even add Alec Manoa to that who's going to make like 700K this year, right? Like that's just tremendous drafting. You know, yeah, like Kirk, Moreno, those guys are making the league minimum. Like Santiago Espinal is making close to the league minimum 
And that's a guy who like you acquired in a really shrewd trade. So it does all sort of work in concert together. But yeah, I think that's a really good place to end is that like the Blue Jays are a market and a franchise and have an ownership where if it's like we got $20 million of dead money on our books, shouldn't like hamstring you. It shouldn't stop you from doing anything else. And I don't believe that it will. Agreed. All right. That's it for at the letters this week. Uh, We'll see if the Blue Jays can keep winning if the Yankees keep winning got two games against the orioles this week and then the yankees on the weekend and then it's out to chicago and milwaukee uh as this stretch this grind for the blue jays continues only like a couple more off days before the all-star break and the all-star break isn't that soon <laughs> no <laughs> a lot of baseball a lot of baseball to be played here yeah seriously and the blue jays don't it's a it's a grind of a schedule just wait till canada day weekend when it's like five games against the rays in four days that's that right is gonna be interesting but that's all we really want is for this to be interesting and it has been that uh i want to thank our producers nick andrade and christian ryan want to thank all of you for listening as well you can email us at the letters at sportsnet.ca we'll be back next week he's ben nicholson smith i'm arden swelling this has been at the letters the letters